Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is award-winning author Marjorie Hudson. Her new book is Indigo Field, which is published by our friends at Regal House Publishing. Marjorie, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here, Jason. It is an honor to have you here, Marjorie. And my first question for you is not about your book, uh, but about your author bio, which states that you read poetry to trees. Um, How, Marjorie, did you start reading poetry to trees and why did you start doing it? That's a great question. Nobody ever asks that question. They just think I'm a little strange. So, yeah, I, I started doing that um, when I knew part of the farm, the family farm I live on, was going to be clear cut. And there were some big old pines. And I said, I need to say goodbye. And I, you know, I'm a tree hugger. Um, so I went kind of through the brush and found the biggest tree I could find. And I brought some Mary Oliver poems mm. and I brought a peanut butter sandwich. I just sat and hung out there for a while with my back against the tree. And uh, I read some Mary Oliver poems to the tree and felt like maybe, maybe it would forgive us for what was about to happen. I don't know. It, it did something great for me. And I talked to a tree at my home. I open an upstairs window and talk to a tree, a big old pecan tree every morning. I say, hello, beautiful. And he talks back to me. So um, it's an important ritual for me. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Mary Oliver is one of my wife Claire's uh, favorites. So she will be delighted to hear that. Well, now let's talk about your excellent new novel, Indigo Field, which was recommended to me uh, by Sarah Godden, my friend and mentor who works at McIntyre's Books in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. A lovely store, listeners. If you ever get a chance to check it out, I recommend that you do not pass the opportunity by. But Marjorie, first, um, could you please take a moment to set this novel up for our listeners and maybe uh, read us read us a short passage? Yeah, Read from the opening. I'll be delighted. Tucked between the Cedar River and the monstrous pines of the Ghouli Ridge lies an ancient field, tangled and wild, knee-high with last year's scrub, strewn with rocks the size of crouching men and sleeping deer. Its soil is deep and loamy that has been planted but never plowed. It is spring, and up on the ridge, a breeze lifts the broad crowns of the ghouly pines, releasing yellow clouds of pollen that float across the highway and come to rest on every flat surface of Stonehaven Downs Retirement Village, including the hood of Colonel Randolph Jefferson Lee's new Honda Accord. West of the ridge, across Spill Creek, The breeze raises wild bees from the hollow heart of Miss Reba's sycamore. The bees rise up from that dark cove of sweetness, hover over three strange cedar statues in the yard, then head across the creek and through the woods. 
They pause over Jolene Blake's tidy fields, then glimmer up the Gooley Ridge and gather among the old pines humming. The pine boughs flicker with the wings of small birds in mating plumage, goldfinches and cardinals, bluebirds and jays, and a lonely painted bunting blown here from the coast in a wild storm. The ghouly pines have lived through drought and flood. They know the glaze of ice and the glimmer of sun on their cracked, cupped bark, each scale like a small ear alert for sound. The giant trunks sense the movements of vast oceans. They taste the breeze and know a storm will rise along the coast of Africa. They listen to the stories of the field. The human stories they hold happened a hundred years ago, or just yesterday, or maybe 10 years hence. It makes no difference to the ghoulies, for time is eternal and flowing, caught in circles within circles, uncounted. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Marjorie. And I'm glad you chose that section to read because I now want to talk a little bit about the first section of your novel and about the characters, uh, Colonel Jefferson Lee and his wife, Anne. Um, how do these characters tie in to the rest of your story? And I ask because I read this section and I was looking forward to getting into the Colonel's headspace only to find that your novel takes a sharp turn in section two. Can you tell us how these sections link together and about the editorial decision to lay your novel out this way? Yes. Um, I think of the characters in my novel as living in two separate worlds. They're in kind of a bubble world. Um, the colonel lives in a, a upscale retirement village, a common thing in my part of the South. Um, and uh, Miss Reba Jones and her neighbor, Joan Lee, live on the other side of the highway, the other side of Indigo Field, and they're hard scrabble farmers and their their worlds and, and who they talk to and what they think and how they struggle is is very different, even though they both sides of the highway people have their losses. So my idea was to bring them together, but I realized and see what happened. I realized I had to really establish a separate world because they were so different. And when it came from um, the Colonel's world to switch to Miss Reba's world, I, I, I feel like it's that thing that DJs do with your, you know, with the record because they're flipping it. Um, it's absolutely a different world. And there are reasons for that. I do think um, in the South, we still often live in very separate worlds. Um, and don't don't understand each other um, or or even what's in front of our very eyes. So that was part of my decision. And I wanted to stay with each character for a, a point of time so that I could establish the rising action with each of them and help the reader feel at home with each of them. And believe me, I struggled with this a long time. Just yeah, took a while. But yeah, well, thank you so much, Marjorie. Um, one descriptor that immediately jumped out at me was the line about yellow clouds of pollen. And for our listeners here in Colorado and further points west who may be unfamiliar, 
Can you tell us about these clouds of pollen and how they affect life in North Carolina in the springtime? Well, they're amazing to witness, aren't they, Jason? I mean, it's like, uh, you know, hoodoo, a dust storm in the Sahara. These, they're like living things. They just kind of shift and cross these clouds of pollen. They cross from one side of the road to the other. You might be sitting there and the pollen storm comes. So... Um, and then, of course, it lands on everything. Um, so people don't put their porch furniture out for a good long time until the pollen storm is over in the spring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I spent so much money getting my car washed um, in North Carolina. And now here in Colorado, it's the snow. Um, it's different beasts, for sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, thank you, Marjorie. Early in this first section, when the colonel is speaking with his wife, Anne, He notes that a crabbiness has seeped into his voice during their every interaction, and he sort of resents it, but he cannot help it. For all of our longtime married listeners who may identify with this, why do you think this sort of thing happens to folks, this crabbiness that is recognized and resented, but continuous, and how can one reverse course on this type of behavior? Oh my goodness, I could talk a long time about that. But, you know, in any relationship of two people, having a relationship of two people who live together their whole lives or most of their lives, I think is one of the most difficult challenges in in the human sphere. Um, If we don't clean up conflict as we go, and most of us really don't want to go there, if we don't know how to fight fair, and if nobody's ever taught us those things, stuff piles up. And you get to a certain point, I, I, you know, I just feel like I witnessed this many times. You get to a certain point in a marriage where um, you haven't done the work you needed to do. And so you, you create a fort, you build a fort, and you hide behind the fort, and you come out and snipe, right, at the other person. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's sad that we do that, but it's in every advice column that I read, that happens a lot. And of course, I've seen that happen in the marriages around me. Sometimes it happens in my own marriage, but there's a lot of work to do to keep two people together and make sure that they've made the decision to love. I think love is a decision and the decision to love involves being for the other person. Um, so I think the colonel has like an inner turmoil that he's not admitting to himself. He's proud. He's self-absorbed. He's um, a loner in a way. And he's uncomfortable where he's living. It's too fancy for him in this upscale retirement place. And his wife is so perfectly happy. It just uh, he's, he becomes more lonely all the while. Um, and the other thing that's going on with him is that he believes he's going to die pretty soon from his heart. It's, he's got an untreatable heart condition, and he'd rather die quickly than slowly in a hospital. And so his plan is to run and to run up a hill into the top of the bridge, the Gooley Pines overlooking Indigo Field, and see if he can crash and have his final heart moment away from people who could rescue him. So he has this kind of sad and a little bit crazy suicidal 
thought pattern going on, but he believes that's the way he can keep his wife, you know, um, from having to pay hospital bills and, and keep everybody happy and make sure that she's okay because he does truly love her. Absolutely. Wise words, uh, Marjorie, and um, ones that I'm sure our listeners are taking note of. Listeners, we are going to pause here for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Marjorie Hudson. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Marjorie Hudson, author of Indigo Field, which is published by our friends at Regal House Publishing. Speaking of Regal House Publishing, Marjorie, uh, can you tell us who they are and how you came to work with them? Yes, I absolutely can. Um, I, oh, it's a long story. I, um, I happened to have in my workshop, I teach ongoing workshops, and one of the editors at Regal House um, was a student in my workshop for a period of time. And she would mention from time to time that she started this company with Jamie Royal. And um, we all go, hmm, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So um, when I was done submitting my novel um, to New York agents and publishers, um, and when I realized Algonquin, the publisher I had hoped to send to, was no longer accepting unagented material, mm. I decided, you know what, you're not getting any younger. I think it, I'm done. I'm going to send it out to small publishers. And so she was uh, the first one that I thought of, uh, Pam Van Dyke, and her partner, Jamie Royal, was the first one I thought of. And one of the things I was very intrigued by with this publisher is that they had a plan to partner with agents for film, foreign rights, and so on. And they were just getting started doing that. And I've been just a you know, recipient of great grace because I showed up and got, um, got a contract with them just as they were starting to do that. So um, a film agent has shown interest and she, uh, the, the, the um, the uh, company Regal House has has um, just contracted with an agent who sells Asian rights. Well, it never even occurred to me that that would be accessible to me with a small publisher. So, um, also they just won the Forward Reviews Small Publisher of the Year last year. So, and um, many of my friends from my MFA program are longtime friends from uh, and teachers, faculty from my MFA program started publishing with them. And I said, you know, 
I'm putting them top on my list and they were they matched this book up right away. Um, so it's a, it's a long book. And I said, oh, Janie, don't you think I need to keep editing? Because I was still editing. And um, she said, oh, no, I like it long. She yeah. went off. She said, I'm like, okay. Nice. <laughs> You're my kind of gal. <laughs> so. Yeah. That's fantastic, Marjorie. Well, I will keep my fingers crossed for you. This is a very filmable novel. I believe it would do very well uh, being adapted. So um, thank you very much. Well, let's dive back into the novel now, Indigo Field. And I have one more question about this opening section, and then we will move on. And this is a brief spoiler alert, listeners, though it happens very early in the novel. But if you are averse to such things, I'm going to give you a couple seconds here to reach for your device and press that pause button. And then you can uh, return to us after you have read this first section. Um, But my question is, the colonel realizes when his wife dies and her friends start coming by that he did not know his wife very well. You alluded to this a bit earlier, um, that their lives had become different things at some juncture of time. And my question for you, Marjorie, is can you ever really know someone? In other words, is anyone an open book? Yeah, you are, you nailed it. I think the whole novel is about how we, we, you know, we believe we understand what the world is, right? And who other people are. But we often discover that we don't. We often are challenged by knowledge that is uncomfortable if we're paying attention. And um, so these characters, all of them are faced with having to pay attention to things they don't want to pay attention to. And um, so exactly, they, they, they learn what the world is really like under the surface of Indigo Field. Yeah, absolutely, Marjorie. And onward to the next section of Indigo Field. Indigo Field, the place, was formerly uh, referred to by some of your characters as Indian Field. Why is this and why the name change? Well, that's another really fun thing I, I worked on in the novel. There's a whole theme about naming and the falsity of renaming, especially on maps, um, but also with people's names. Um, so uh, it was called Indian Field on old maps in pre, uh, two centuries back because there was a sort of a uh, a, a group of indigenous people who had gathered and survived after the Tuscola War, after um, all the changes in uh, to 20 nations of Native Americans in South and North Carolina. Um, and they gathered together and found a, founded a small community in order to survive. Um, it was before the area was populated to a great degree by um, European people. And uh, they found a way to survive. And one of my characters is one of the survivors. She's the last living Tuscarora person um, who lives in the field. So uh, in one of the scenes, uh, an archeologist explains to his assistant uh, that here's a map from 1800. Here's a map from shortly into the 1900s. See how the place name changed. Um, And one of the mysteries in the story is 
who changed it? Was it, you know, and who made up the story that, you know, indigo had been um, planted here and was a failed crop? Because I believe, uh, I think it's clear in the novel that none of that is true. In fact, um, that there was a protector person who was stepping in to hide the identities of people in the field. Or it could be, you know, there's an open to interpretation of there are people who really didn't like the fact that Native American people, indigenous people had been in the field and they wanted to hide that history. Mm -hmm. um, I've looked at a lot of old maps and I, I love how they work. I was explaining to my physical therapist recently, who is a lot younger than me, that um, if you didn't know that Native American people really still lived um, in the South and were thriving, um, there is a hint in that the names of almost all the rivers are um, Native American words of different languages and actually very closely related to the names of tribes. For example, you know the Eno River, well, there's the Eno tribal people who lived there. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Thank you so much, Marjorie. Um, now I'm hoping you can tell us about the totems on Miss Reba's porch and what function they serve. And also maybe tell us a little bit about the role that witchcraft plays in your novel. Oh, my goodness. I don't think of it as witchcraft. But, you know, she. Uh, OK, so Miss Reba, she has been taught some herbal uh, remedies. Mm -hmm. um, and she knows things that if, if you didn't know what she was up to in her heritage, you might think was kind of spooky magic stuff. But she speaks to the dead and she believes in curses and she believes in um, uh, living voices of the spirits around her. She's surrounded by the dead. She's all alone in the world. So she speaks to people. But I just want to say before people might say, well, that's a little stereotypical of you. Um, I really worked against stereotype here. She has her own way of doing things. Um, and uh, she, she got the, the fellow across the highway, the colonel across the highway also speaks to the dead. He just has a way that might be more familiar to people raised in a, in a majority culture. He talks to um, his dead wife in his head. He talks to um, the portrait over the over the mantelpiece where the eyes follow him around. So um, back to the back to those statues though, those totems. And that that's um, that could be a great word for them. I think of them as outsider art. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of outsider art. Um, often people who live in kind of the margins of our world, contemporary and in worlds past, um, become artists in response to great upheavals in their lives. And Reba's father is one of those people. When uh, tragedy strikes in his family and there's some deaths, tragic, tragic, heartbreaking deaths that I won't say what, um, uh, it breaks his heart and it breaks his spirit. And he only can find one way to handle that. And that's through making art. And some people might think of them, they might look a little bit like uh, like a, a totem carved by a, you know, a nation of Western Indians. I also have in my head 
uh, the indigenous people of the drawings of John White on um, the Hatteras people and the people that he um, drew pictures of who often had dancers around uh, carved posts um, that he depicted in the first European drawings of the New World. So um, that was a little bit in mind. A friend said, what, you know, are, are they, they might be kind of like Yoruba spirits. Um, so they're memorials to the dead. And I didn't know that. I looked up the Yoruba culture in Africa and, um, and I, I saw that they often had carved um, figures um, in semicircles who depicted the spirits of the dead. And I'm probably not explaining that very well, but you, you can see that it's a theme. It's not, um, not, not, but my original, uh, my original uh, inspiration for that was seeing and loving outsider art. Um, I actually saw, I was in a neighborhood uh, outside of Mevin and I saw a fellow's yard who had made a statue, a black angel it looked like to me and he it just seemed fierce to me and I thought there's a lot of feeling in that creation also one of the first people I met when I moved to Chatham County from up north more than 35 years ago was Clyde Jones and Clyde Jones I saw his yard full of those critters that he makes I'm sure you've seen them Jason um, he's a famous artist all over the world but his, you look at his work and you're in presence of genius and possibly madness as well. It's just so striking and unusual. So that kind of expression in art is very interesting to me. And I, I, I follow it. I collect it a little bit. And um, uh, it has a spiritual component often that, that I really love. Absolutely. And I do want to clarify, I used the term witchcraft because there are flashback scenes early in the novel where Miss Reba is talking about um, approaching a person who is identified as a witch um, in their town for the folks who don't know her. But um, moving on, Marjorie, I now want to ask about a line from your novel. And that line is, quote, here's why some people live so long, they ain't give up their misery, end quote. Marjorie, can you unpack this statement for us that some people live so long because they won't give up their misery? Well, it's an idea that may or may not hold true for most people. Um, but I, I have a belief. Um, I'm a little bit of an unusual person, perhaps, but I have a belief that we are supposed to love uh, the planet and love each other and our life's work is to learn how to do that and so if you're miserable and you're you're kind of out of balance if you haven't learned the teachings those teachings in the course of your life yet maybe you have to hang around long enough to learn them maybe it's a chance to learn them if you grow into old age now I realize that's a peculiar theory but that really comes from one of my voice yeah absolutely i like it thank you so much marjorie um finally i want to ask about the child that miss reba takes on early in your novel tj 
Uh, TJ is orphaned by the death of uh, Danielle and the jailing of his father for Danielle's murder. Uh, Miss Reba takes him in, but wishes that he will mess up so she can send him back. And this, Marjorie, is a question about the system that children like TJ find themselves in, where they can be fostered by folks who are in turn empowered to send the children back as if they are adopting a pet from the pound or buying merchandise that may be defective, etc. Um, and my question, Marjorie, is, is this really the best system that we can come up with for these children um, where they can be given homes and then tossed away uh, like bad merchandise? Can children ever be set up for success in this type of system or is there something better that we can strive for? Maybe some type of legal protection. Well, that is a huge question um, that I am not completely prepared to answer for all time, but I certainly, you know, we all have seen that the foster system can be very destructive. Um, but we also, you know, in my story, Miss, Miss Reba fosters black boys, black children, very successfully. She just doesn't want a white boy in the house because she doesn't like the fact that he witnessed you know, um, that he's the son of the man who killed her beloved niece. So, um, yeah, uh, what you point out a big theme in the, in the novel, which is that he has no place to go. They, they put him in Butner. Um, they put him in, uh, you know, a, a house, a home of a woman who takes in children who don't have a place to go. And, you know, it's, 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 um, the fact of life that sometimes children have no place to go and it's not that um, we can fix it, but we sure could be thinking about that a little bit more clearly and creating systems where, as you say, there might be more legal pro uh, protections. Um, I come from a background of mentoring. I've been very active in mentoring organizations for young students. And I, boy, I wish I had a mentor when I was young. And I was not horribly abused or anything, but it's important for every young person to have someone who shows up for them um, and who maybe is not their parents. So if we did more of that, that would be my sort of ideal situation. If every child had some kind of um, mentor and of course, when I was working in the mentoring system, we do background checks, we do trainings and all that. So, you know, there's not there's less of a chance of kind of the horrible things that you hear about. Um, but yeah, I am very sad for TJ. And of course, it's vulnerable children whose parents are jailed who end up in this situation. And it happens to Black families as well as white families. Um, and it shouldn't happen. Of course, it shouldn't happen. Uh, but sitting and thinking about how we could love families differently is something I do and rant about to friends and family, but I'm, I'm not empowered to fix it. I do have a game I play, which is called Queen to Fix the World, mm -hmm. and I talk with my uh, women friends, and we go for walks, and they get three decrees. So if I were the queen to fix the world, I would have some decrees in that area that could make um, instant change. 
Absolutely. That sounds like a great game. Well, thank you so much, Marjorie. And thank you for writing this wonderful novel. Listeners, thank you. I have been speaking with Marjorie Hudson, author of Indigo Field, which is published by our friends at Regal House Publishing. Marjorie, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Nice to be here. Really enjoyed your question. Once again, I would like to thank Marjorie Hudson for joining me. Copies of Indigo Field can be purchased from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.